Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Well, please be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the good news that John had written. John chapter 7. It is hard not to turn to this passage on Sukkot. Because there it is. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And we begin to see how Messiah observed the Feast of Tabernacles and what he taught, particularly on this occasion. We don't have all the time that I'd like to have with you. But in order to really fully appreciate what's going on here, we need to know some things about the Feast of Tabernacles. We need to know some things about how the Jewish people observe the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a seven, eight-day festival. The last day, excuse me, the last day of the feast was referred to as Hoshana Rabbah, the great rejoicing. And so it was that last day that a crescendo of joy and celebration rose to the fore as Jewish people gathered in the temple in the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. There were some unique traditions that were observed during this time. On this occasion, for example, seven menorahs were erected in the court of the women in the temple. These were huge menorahs that the young priests in training would climb up to by putting a ladder alongside of it. And as they'd come to the top, they would fill the seven bowls of the menorah with oil. And then they would take the old priestly garments that would otherwise have been discarded and used, and they would utilize them as wicks in the menorahs. It's one of the reasons why in John chapter 8 or so, during the same occasion, Messiah is going to teach that I am the light of the world. Another tradition that occurred on the Feast of Tabernacles was that there was a water-pouring ceremony. That's because the Feast of Tabernacles occurs during the fall. This is the beginning of the rainy season in Israel. The winter months are its rainy season. And if God is gracious to the people of Israel, the land of Israel will receive both the former and latter rains. The former rains are the early rains in Israel that come around the fall and the winter time prior to January, February. The latter rains fall February into April or May. If God is gracious and both the former and latter rains fall, then the crops could quadruple in number. 
and there would be an overabundance of harvest come the end of the spring, the beginning of summer. And so in celebration of God's outpouring of water upon the land of Israel, in prayer for rain, the priests would go out of what was called the water gate. Of course, we can make a lot of that if we were in D.C. or Maryland, but we're not. But the water gate was outside the southern gate of Jerusalem. And as they would exit out this gate, they would go down to the, the Hezekiah's tunnel. And at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel was the, the pool of Siloam. And there they would take these golden pitchers and they would fill them with water. And at a procession, the priests would come back to Jerusalem. They'd come back in through the water gate. And then they'd come to the altar in the holy place in the court of the men. This was a huge altar that the priests would climb these steps in order to place the sacrifices upon it. And alongside of the altar, they would erect these unique silver tubings. And one set of priests would climb up one side of the altar and pour the water out through the silver tubings that would flow down to the base of the altar. On the opposite side, there would be a group of priests that would go up with jars and of wine. Wine was a symbol of joy and of God's good pleasure. And they would pour wine through another set of silver tubings that would go to the base of the altar. This was sort of a visible way of praying and asking God for rain to be poured out on the people of Israel. The rabbis tell us that it was not enough that just water from heaven would be poured out upon Israel, but that the Spirit of God needed to be poured out upon the Jewish people, that they might be renewed, and that they might be filled with God's presence in order to walk in God's ways, so that the promise of rain would fall out or fall down upon us. As the water pouring was being taken place on this last day of the feast, Hoshana Rabbah, the great rejoicing, there would have been a procession of priests that would have been circling the altar seven times. In their hands, they would have various vegetation that represented the various areas of the land of Israel. They would have the palm branches, and the palm branches represented the flat plains of the land of Israel. The crevices between the palm branches represented the valleys in the land of Israel. The pointy top of the palm branches represented the mountains around Israel, particularly Mount Hermon. And then there would be these willow branches and myrtle branches that were attached to the palm branches. And these branches represented the, the waterways, the creeks, the riverbeds, the wadis that would fill with water during the spring and rainy seasons. So that all of these areas, all of the terrain of the land of Israel that is given to the Jewish people is represented by the vegetation. And the prayer is that the vegetation would grow and the crops would grow and we would have great blessing and overabundance from the Lord.
As the priests circled the altar seven times and as they carried all of this vegetation, they would read from Isaiah chapter 12. And in Isaiah chapter 12, this great section from chapters 7 through 12 in the book of Isaiah, they would read, In that day you will say, I praise you, O Lord. Although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so as they're praying for rain, they're praying for an outpouring of God's spirit. And as the spirit of God is outpoured, salvation would be experienced. This is the day that Yeshua stood up and spoke. Now let me read to you what is described for us in chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, the greatest day of the feast, Yeshua stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams, rivers of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Yeshua had not been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Others said, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Yeshua. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. This is the great day of the feast. And one of the things that oftentimes we miss is the utter courage of our Savior. If you look at chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After this, Yeshua went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. The people were ready to kill Messiah. And the text tells us he stayed away from Judea, he stayed away from Jerusalem. But toward the end of the chapter, we find that Yeshua goes to Judea, he goes right to Jerusalem, he goes right to the temple, and then with a loud voice, he begins to say the words we read in verse 37 and the following. There's such courage in our Messiah that he's ready to enter into the very lion's den to proclaim the truth about who he is. The scripture says something else that's really neat in prelude to this section. It tells us about his family. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 it says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. This word believe is very critical. It's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. It means that his brothers habitually continued to not believe in him. This was not just a one-moment statement that they didn't believe. It meant that their whole life up to this point was a life of unbelief about their, their brother as to who he truly was. And then the scripture says something else that's important for us to understand. I, and I point that out because it's never enough to look back on our past 
and to sort of revel in the idea that in a particular time, many moons ago, I invited the Lord into my life. It's a good thing to have had that moment. But it's an important thing that that moment doesn't just remain a moment in the past, but is an event that occurred that has lasting repercussions throughout our life. We have to not only celebrate we once believed in him when we invited him into our life, we need to be about believing in him ongoingly throughout the entirety of our life. And so what we read here is the brothers did not ongoingly, habitually, committedly believe in their brother as Messiah at this particular juncture in their life. That will change, but it hasn't changed yet. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we like these brothers? Are we ones who are not ongoingly believing in him? Are we simply looking to the past and saying there was a moment when I believed? I know exactly where I was and what I was doing when I invited the Lord into my life. But is that all that our faith has become? Or is it something that continues to impact us moment by moment, day by day to this very day in which we live? It's a critical question to ask. It's a serious question to ask. Because when we stand before him, we want to truly know that our relationship with him is genuine. And that's something in which we have deceived ourselves or deluded ourselves into trusting in something that may not be of any consequence at all. Now, there's another thing that's very interesting to me in this passage as well. Because it says that when he came... Individuals, or before he came, individuals began to raise the question about whether or not he will come. And that when he came, it said that they were watching for him. They say in verse 10, how after, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, but not publicly. But at the feast, the Jewish people were watching for him. They were looking for him. What would he do? Surely he must come to this festival because all Jewish men 20 years up and older were to appear at this particular feast according to Deuteronomy 16. So they're watching for him. They're looking for him. And Messiah, it says now to verse 37, Yeshua stood, verse 17. This word stood is an interesting word. It means to say that he was sort of apart from all of the action. And he was observing what was going on. He was standing and seeing what was happening in the temple as the priests were going through the traditions that they were committed to. And in the midst of those traditions, it then says, he stood and in a loud voice that no one could miss him. You know, this is the only passage in all of the, the good news accounts where it speaks of Yeshua speaking with a loud voice. It's the only place where he shouts out, almost at the top of his lungs, I suppose. And he says, if any man is thirsty, as they're pouring the water, as they're praying for the Spirit of God, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink, for out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, what I want to focus on in the few moments that I have with you is something I think is very critical and very critical to our bodies. So critical that next week is Simchat Torah. We have a bat mitzvah, so I cannot continue on this train of thought. But after that, I want to do, begin a series on the fruit of the Spirit. 
Because the Spirit of God's presence in our lives is so critical, and this passage speaks to it. It doesn't matter what kind of strategies we employ. It doesn't matter what kind of heart concerns we may have for a particular matter, such as winning uh, Jewish people to faith or presenting the good news to our brethren because we want them to en- enjoy the joy of the Lord that we've come to enjoy and all the benefits thereof. It doesn't matter how we begin to philosophize about our faith. It doesn't even matter to what degree we understand our faith, although all of that's important. What's really critical is that the Spirit of God is alive in our midst, not just in our midst but in our own selves. That's what Yeshua is about here. And that's what struck me. And I think this is a great introduction to thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. There are three things that Messiah tells us here that we need to pay close attention to. He tells us, first of all, what it is that is being provided for us. He tells us, secondly, not only what's being provided, he tells us how to receive it. And then perhaps even most critically, he tells us how we ought to be or what we ought to look like if we have received it. That's where it gets a little dicey, you know. If we've received it, if we've received what he's speaking about, what are we supposed to look like? And Messiah tells us this. So let's take a look at some of this for a moment. First of all, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believe in him were later to receive. So this is what it is that we can receive. The very spirit of God. He's a person. We can receive him into our lives. Now, what does that really mean to receive him? And the interesting thing is, it says that because the spirit was not yet given, because Messiah was not yet glorified. Now, John uses the term glorification of our Messiah in unique ways. Sometimes when he makes reference to the glorification of Messiah, he means those things Messiah does that demonstrates he's the Messiah of Israel. So in John chapter 1, it says, we beheld his glory. And when he tabernacled, when he dwelt among us, we beheld his glory as of the Father, full of grace and truth. When we saw him, we saw something of his glory. You read in John chapter 2 that after he turns the water into wine, this is the first of his miracles, and they saw his glory. Sometimes it has to do with just him in terms of who he is. Sometimes it has to do with what he is doing. Sometimes it has to do with who he is with respect to the second person of the triunity. You know, in the high priestly prayer, when he's in that upper room on Passover, he prays that the Lord would glorify him with the glory he had before he came into the world. In Philippians, Paul speaks about him setting aside his glory. Sometimes when John uses it, he refers to his death as the glorification of Messiah. And so all of this is wrapped up in Messiah. Messiah tells us the spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. And so what does he mean by that? 
On the one hand, there is a sense in which the reception of the Spirit of God today is somewhat different than the reception of the Spirit of God in the past. Because Yeshua said, the Spirit of God is with you, but he shall be in you. He uses the future tense. He will be in you. The idea is that prior to his coming, the Spirit of God may have dwelt with individuals, but they never, he never dwelt in them. We don't know fully what it means for the Spirit of God to dwell in, but it's distinct from dwelling with in some fashion. And we can kind of philosophize and theologize about that, but we cannot really land the plane with respect to what the difference is. But it certainly denotes a relationship to God that is different than what had been experienced before. But we also can think of this passage not just in terms of the Spirit of God being with and now in. But I have a sense in which Messiah is saying the experience of the Spirit of God after the glorification, death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah will be so much greater than the experience of the Spirit of God before his death, burial, and resurrection. We see this in certain passages of Scripture. For example, you remember like John the Immerser. It says of him that John is the greatest of all the prophets. And then Messiah says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he. How is that possible that the least in the kingdom of heaven can be greater than John? The idea is that of comparison. What John had experienced when Messiah came will be a, a less glorious experience than those who are least in the kingdom of heaven after John's ministry and after the glorification of Messiah. In other words, it's a statement of comparison. You think John had a great opportunity to be the proclaimer and the herald of Messiah, but even the least in the kingdom of heaven is going to experience greater things than what John experienced or can experience greater things than what John experienced. It's sort of like Nathaniel when Yeshua says, I saw you under the tree. And, you, and Nathaniel said, yikes, I can't believe you saw that. And what does Yeshua say? Greater things than these you will see. It may very well be that what he's saying now is that the Spirit of God was not yet given in the same sort of way and degree in which he will be given now after the glorification of Messiah. We know the Spirit of God dwelt with David we know he empowered Samson. We know he had empowered Gideon. We know the Spirit of God was alive and empowering. But now Messiah is telling us, and John is editorializing, that after the glorification of Messiah, the Spirit of God will be experienced in greater ways. And so the question is, are we experiencing him that way? Because that is what Messiah is telling us he's granting to us. What does that mean? Here's the thing that it strikes me about this. We too often think that the believing faith is about being good people, being moral, being upright, having ethical behavior, making right decisions. We think that that's what being a believer is about, and certainly it has an effect on those things that I just said. But that is not why Messiah came into the world. He came into the world that we would know God. He came into the world that we would experience the presence of God. He came into the world that we would have such a connection with God that it would be overwhelming to us. 
That's why the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's the question. Are we tasting? Are we seeing? Are we experiencing the goodness of God? Because that's what Messiah wants. That's why he came. He didn't come merely to correct our behavior. So we stand apart and say, look how good I've become. He came to enable us to be connected to God, to have a relationship with God, to experience the presence of God in dramatic and dynamic ways. That's why Peter says we have become participants in the very divine nature of God. It doesn't mean we become little gods. It means that we are to have a connection to God that is unique to any other connection we have ever had. And so the question is, do we have that connection? And have we received the Spirit of God so as to have that connection? So that the life blood of God, as it were, is flowing in and through us. That's what Messiah is talking about. He's talking about receiving the Spirit of God so that his presence is experienced dramatically and transformatively. And so how do we receive this? How are we to receive this great gift? Yeshua tells us there are two things we have to do. Take a look at the passage. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. There are two things you have to do. You have to be thirsty and you have to believe in him. You have to come to him. Now, on the outset, that sounds pretty simple. But it's a little more difficult than I think we realize. Because what does it mean to be thirsty? What does it mean when it says, if anyone thirsts? I have to tell you, there was a time now, and I sort of contradict myself here, but there was a time when I was 17 years old, when I invited the Lord into my life, I was so thirsty for God. I had come to that point in my life where I said, Lord, if you can do something with my life, you can have it. What was I telling him? I was telling him there was no strength left in myself. There was no benefit that I can give to anyone, let alone to God or myself. What was I telling God? I was telling God that I was empty and I no longer had anything to give. And I knew that there was no way that I could please God by anything I would do. And I was brought to a place of utter thirst. There was no place else to turn. And there was no way that that thirst could be quenched. I had to turn to him. But what Yeshua is telling us is that sense of thirst is not just a one-time moment. It's an ongoing reality that we need to be cognizant of throughout our lives. There's never a time, even after we come to Messiah, that we cannot be not thirsting for him. There's never a time when we are not dependent upon the Spirit of God to be alive in our hearts and to be leading us, to be guiding us, and to be directing us. I can't help but think, especially this is Sukkot, 
Can't help but think of the Jewish people's wandering in the wilderness. Think about this. If you look at Exodus chapter 17, we have a moment in the history of Israel. Exodus 17. Where the people of Israel thirst. They thirst very greatly. So much so, it says the whole Israelite community, Exodus 17, set out for the desert of sin. They were traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now get this. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. They grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Do you know, I can't help but think what a bad place Moses was in. You meant two, mil- two million people? They're saying, you're the cause of all our problems. You know, why'd you take us out here? Why did you bring us here not to have any water? You know, do you ever have people like just dump everything on you? And it's like, what? You know? And here, that's what they're doing to Moses. They're accusing him ultimately of mismanagement. They're accusing him of lack of leadership. They're accusing him of not communicating God's word accurately to them. Because obviously God wouldn't lead us here to to die of thirst. It says they quarrel, but they didn't just quarrel with him. Check this out in verse uh, 4. Then Moses cried out to God, what am I to do? Look at this. They're ready to kill me. They're ready to execute him. They're ready to get rid of him because they are not happy with the state of affairs they find themselves in. But look what happens. The Lord then answers Moses. He says, walk ahead of the people. There's leadership. He says, take with you some of the elders so they can see what I'm about to do. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. The staff of God. You know, it's called the staff of Moses. Then once God tells him to take it, it only is referred to as the staff of God throughout the Exodus wandering. And it's used for two purposes. It's always used for judgment. It's always used for punishment. But it's interesting how there's this combination of salvation and punishment that occurs. For example, there's the the stretching of the staff, the Red Sea's part. There's a salvation, but then the waters close to bring judgment on the Egyptians. But notice what he says here. Take the rod that you touched the Nile with to turn it to blood. And, of course, all of the plagues were brought about, just about all, in that fashion. It's a rod symbolizing judgment of God is about to fall. And so what does he tell him to do? He says, I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Horeb. Strike the rock. I mean, he says, God says, I'm going to stand there before you. And he says, strike the rock. Water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the Lord. Now look at this. And he called the place Masa and Meribah, quarreling and testing. Why? Because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested Moses? No. Look what it says. They tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? 
Wow. You know, that's an amazing passage. Speaks to me very directly. But when I look at that passage, here's the other thing that strikes me. The reason why the Spirit of God can be given, how do we receive it? Is because God is struck. He's standing by the rock. What is Moses really doing? He's striking the rod that God is standing by, which is actually an action in which God is being struck. That's the imagery. He's standing by the rock, and he's striking the rock. The way the water comes out is through the suffering of another. And the way that the Spirit of God is given is when the rock of Israel is struck. And the Spirit of living water flows out. That's not my idea, by the way. That's Paul's idea. Because if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is exactly what Paul says. I do not want you to be ignorant, 1 Corinthians 10.1, of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. They were all immersed unto Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Messiah. So what is Paul telling us? When Moses struck the rock... He was striking Messiah. And it would be necessary for rocks to be struck, for the blessings of God to be experienced. Do you want to be a person from which the water of God's life flows? You've got to be willing to be struck. You've got to be willing to pay the price and to suffer, as it were. Remember what Paul says, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. That seems to be the pattern if there's going to be life, an animal must be struck and its blood sprinkled. If the firstborn are going to be saved, a lamb must be struck and its blood sprinkled on the side doorpost. If water's coming out of a rock, God must stand before it and there's a striking of the rock. If there's going to be a, the Spirit of God unleashed, the rock Messiah must be struck. And if we're going to be a people who are going to be flowing with the Spirit of God, we too are going to need to experience a striking of some kind, a loss of much, a giving up and a sacrifice of self. So we know, number one, that which is meant to enable us to have a living, dynamic relationship with God in which the life of God is alive within us is something God provides for us by means of him being struck. Remember what Yeshua says, Come unto me. It is he who gives, it is we who receives, but you must be thirsty. And you must want to drink. And you must want to drink deeply. But the second thing he tells us is, we must also believe. The idea is we need to realize we have a great need. And we need to find the antidote for our need in him and we are to trust therefore in what he's done for us in that he would give his life for us he's the giver we are merely the receivers so what does it what do individuals who've experienced and received the gift of the spirit what do they look like how do we know 
when we have truly received the gift of the Spirit. Yeshua tells us. He says, out of their innermost being, that is to say, out of their character, out of who they truly are, will flow rivers of living water. Living water is a phrase, the Spirit of God. So out of his innermost, out of her innermost, out of their innermost being, their character will exhibit the Spirit of God. He uses the phrase water. So think about this. What does water do? First of all, it can revive and renew us. You ever been so thirsty that you just had to have some water? As a sailor, and as one that used to go out sometimes 10 days at a clip, never come off the boat, just hang on the boat and sail around. One time we were on the boat 21 days without ever getting off and staying on, on board. So we always had this concern for water, you know. I mean, you have all this water around you, but you can't go near it, right? So we used to stuff underneath the cockpit with just gallons and gallons of water. Every time we came back, we still had gallons and gallons of water, you know. It wasn't we, like we were out for months and months or anything, but we were always saying, do we have enough water? Let's get a little more. Let's get a little more, you know. But nevertheless, when you're out there, there are those moments where i got to have some of that water, you know, because it just gets a little too much. Water renews. It refreshes. Those of you who are athletes, you know that when you've pressed your body to the limit, just need some water, you know. Um, Wendy and Carlton's son from the Marine Corps is here, right? And you just, did you just get, what do you, commissioned, I guess you call that, or? Yeah. And so it's great to have you here. Thanks for being here this morning. So I'm sure you've gone through the paces, you know. I don't know if you, you were down in, in uh, San Diego, right? Well, on the East Coast, of course, they got Quantico, and they got Paris Island. And I remember one of my friends telling me, when you entered Paris Island, they had a sign that said, Welcome to Hell. You know? And then they put you through the pet paces, and man, when you get some water, you know, it's like life. And so on the one hand, what does it look like, you know, is that, first of all, there's that experience of renewal refreshment, revival. The Spirit of God is truly in you. If you've really experienced the Spirit of God, well, then there has to be a sense of renewal. There has to be a sense of refreshment. There has to be a sense of revival in our hearts and in our character as we just be whom God is enabling us to be. The life flow of God by His Spirit ought to exhibit a person who's experienced renewal, a person who's experienced revival, a person who has, ref has experienced life. But it's not just about refreshment, but there's also something else water does, and it cleanses. That's why the Spirit of God is referred to as the Holy Spirit. He cleanses, and therefore, He makes us different. He transforms us. The goodness that we exhibit is a goodness that results from the work of the Spirit of God, not a cause for him to work. And so we want the Spirit of God to manifest himself. Indeed, we want to be a holy, righteous people. But it's after his work in our hearts. And so what kind of people ought we to look like? We ought to be a people who are righteous, people who are 
doing the right kinds of things, desiring the right kinds of things. We're in process. A people who express a renewal of heart and soul. And here's the last thing that strikes me. He says, out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Water flows, right? It flows to its lowest point. But here it flows out from our character. And so here's the question. Is your life a life that brings renewal? A life that brings revival? A life that inspires holiness in others? Or is it a life that drains others? Is it a life that depletes others? Because what Messiah says is, the Spirit of God in our hearts ought to flow out and touch the lives of others so that they might be renewed, they might be revived, they might be transformed. So are we giving life to others? Are we draining the life out of others? Are we building others up or are we tearing down? Are we encouraging others through our life and through our character? Or are we making their life harder and more miserable? That's what Yeshua is telling us. Do you, and that's why this is tough kinds of stuff. Because Messiah says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. And if we drink him in, his spirit will flow out. So are you having, am I having that kind of effect on others? That's a great indication. It's why Messiah said the prostitutes and tax collectors get into heaven before the righteous the Orthodox, the Pharisees, and the scribes. Why? Because they didn't thirst, whereas the prostitutes and tax collectors did. Because these individuals thought they were righteous and holy, and therefore felt they had something they offered God, and said, well, God, you owe me, because look at all that I do. Look at all that I give. Look how greatly I serve. But that's not what God is looking for. He's looking for those who say, Lord, I cannot do anything without you. For without you, I can do nothing. And whatever it is I have done, it is not anything for which I deserve anything. But rather, it is all by your grace. Is your life a life that flows out into the lives of others that they are refreshed? Is my life a life that flows out to others, that they are encouraged and inspired to be the kinds of people God would want us to be, a holy people? Are our lives lives that flow into the lives of others in such a way that it brings joy and that it brings a sense of I've got to taste and see that the Lord is good because I see something of the aroma, the fragrance, the taste in your life? Or are we drained? And are we exhausted? And are we tired out because of our impact negatively on the lives of others? That is not what God intends. He doesn't intend for us to be so theologically accurate that our lives are simply a negative influence on others. So when I think here we are at Sukkot, it's about the dwelling presence of God. And so is God dwelling presence in you? And if he is, 
Are we exhibiting the things that God, that Messiah has just told us we ought to exhibit? The life flow of God as a river bubbling out in overabundance. I read this quote from uh, Spurgeon that, uh, and this is, I don't know if I've ever experienced it, but I'll share it with you. He said, some of us know what it's like to be too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight. For we were afraid that we could endure no more. I believe one night that if God had not veiled his love and glory a bit, we would have died for joy. I, I, I don't know if I could ever put my initials <laughs> to that. But that's what Messiah is telling us, isn't he? He's saying that we can experience God's presence in a way that his presence has never been experienced for. Greater things than these. Great, the least in heaven is greater than John. Messiah is saying all we have to do in order to experience him in this way is to thirst for him and to believe in Messiah who makes the provision and to receive it from him. And if we have, here's the evidence, that the Spirit of God's very presence will naturally, habitually, ongoingly flow out of our character. It's not something you have to conjure up or work at. It just is there because the Spirit of God is there. And if his presence is there and flows out of us, we should be refreshing one another. We should be encouraging and inspiring one another to live more righteously. We ought to be um, infecting others. Maybe that's not a good word, but, you know, engaging others for a... For a good thing, and not for the bad things that too often is characteristic. That's why I want us to look, take a fresh look at the fruit of the Spirit. Because that's what I would like my life, and that's what I would like our lives to exhibit as Beth Ariel. You know, that's what we want, right? We want Beth Ariel to be all this stuff, you know. Look at the peace, the love, the joy, the pain. That's what we want. I got to go to Beth Ariel because they preach accurately. No, I don't. I make a lot of mistakes. You know, we give generously. We give as much as we can. You know, we uh, serve forthrightly. Well, we're weak. But one thing we want people to say is that's a loving body. That's a peaceful body. You know? That's a patient with others body. That's an accepting body. That's an enduring body. I mean, that's what we want, isn't it? And on the Feast of Tabernacles, Yeshua is telling us, here is how you can have it. So, balls in our court. Are we thirsting for it? You know? If you're not, you won't have it. But if we are, we will. And not only will we have it, but others will will experience it as well. 
and the Lord's presence like on David and Samson and Gideon will be on our lives as well. Well, Father, we are grateful for your word to us this Feast of Tabernacles Day. Today, we are to reflect on the dwelling presence of God, the Shekinah glory that led the Jewish people through the wilderness. It's a time we dwell in booths to remind us that when we would enter the land, Deuteronomy 8, enter the land, that we would not conclude, look at all that our hands have provided for us, but rather we would say, look at all of how gracious God has been to us. And so we're to dwell in booths to remember that we had nothing. We came from slavery, but God has given us so much. And so on this occasion, as we enter into the booth We want to remember that that is sort of a symbol of our lives. We're sort of just temporary structures that have blown too hard without your grace can easily fall over. But you sustain us moment by moment and day by day. So, Father, as prayers are offered for rain, we pray that your spirit would fall on the people of Israel but we pray your spirit would fall on us. And we pray, Father, that we would have thirsty hearts. We pray, Father, that we would have ongoingly believing hearts. And we pray, Lord, as you have promised to give us of your spirit, that we would receive him and we would allow him to have his way. You are a person, so there's no three easy steps to receiving the Spirit. It's all about developing a relationship with you, spending time with you, depending upon you, looking to you, believing your word. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be a congregation in which our congregation is not just indwelt by the Spirit, but filled and controlled by him. And in being so controlled... Our life would be a flowing life of life to others. It would be a flowing life of joy to others. That we can say, not only by our words, but our actions, taste and see the Lord is good. And so, Father, may we experience such joy that if you did not refrain, we would perish. Father, thank you for having your son take our stroke. Thank you for your son being our rock who was struck that we would have life and have it more abundantly and that his life would flow out through us and among us. Help us in this, we pray, as we celebrate you and rejoice in you. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.